is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined here today by Professor McClay. He is a historian and professor at Hillsdale College. He wrote an excellent book chronicling American history entitled The Land of Hope, An Introduction to the Great American Story. Professor McClay, thanks so much for being with me. Well, I'm very happy to be here, Ashton. Appreciate it. So, We've been trying um, to set this up for a while, yeah. so I'm glad we can finally do it. Uh, I'm very glad as well. Um, let's start off with, with, with the, the title of your book, and we'll, we'll take it from there. So The Land of Hope. Why is the United States the land of hope? Because uh, as far as I've been told that it's a uh, you know white supremacy uh, colonial empire founded by horrible racists, uh, formed for the – preservation of the institution of slavery, or has the New York Times been lying to me? Why is it land of hope? Yeah, well, I mean, it sheds a light on this to think about the fact that people making these accusations occupy, you know, some of the highest positions at the, the most powerful pa- newspaper record in the country. Uh, it, it doesn't quite jibe. But yeah. No, look, I think uh, land of hope is, uh, it, it's actually the first thing I wrote in writing this book because I wanted to have a guiding image for what is the source of America's distinctiveness and, and greatness and uh, in, in human history. And it did seem to me that that, that, that was, the thing, for me, the single most um, uh, powerful dis- distinguishing characteristic, that this is, a, this is a country in which, for the most part, people, um, we're an aspirational country. We, and and that, what that means is that we believe, all of us, I think, almost entire, there's almost a consensus about this, that no one should be condemned to spend their lives um, chained to the conditions of their birth. And yes, this is an ideal that has never been perfectly realized, but um, that it has been <laughs> attempted and, and, and largely realized. Um, as, a, as an expression of opportunity, um, is is phenomenal, and I think we ought to we, we need to pay tribute to that. And we need to recognize, in the, the vast scale of human history, that how unprecedented this is um, for individuals to have the kind of scope of opportunity that they have. That no one's required to uh, to be defined in terms of their their material goals, in terms of their religious professions. Um, uh, in, in, in terms of their ethnic identity, even, um, by conditions of birth. So it, there's room, there's space for uh, aspiration here. And, um, and, and you know, aspiration is something that has no end. So obviously, the hope can never be completely realized. And, there are, and, and when you have opportunity, you also have the opportunity to fail. That's part of what we are, too. Um, to be an opportunity society means that success is not guaranteed. But, uh, but this aspirational quality is what draws people across the seas and often in perilous 
voyages to come here and draws them even now, even as we speak. And if we were this terrible racist country, why would anybody want to come here? Why wouldn't they not want to flee uh, pell-mell in the opposite direction? But that's not what happens. And, uh, uh, and, and within the country itself, there's, we're um, a boisterous, ever-moving, ever-striving uh, society. You know, in, in America, it's, uh, you know, parents want to see their children exceed them. That's quite a remarkable thing. Um, that, that, that we, we feel that if our children don't surpass us in some way, we haven't, we haven't really fully succeeded. Um, so uh, that, that, that's, uh, that's a beginning of, of, of uh, there are lots of other ways. I think it also is a, is a title that helps to uh, uh, hint at at least the, the importance of religion, of, of religious hope and in the, in the American story and, and, and hope that's expressed in a, in a, in a this worldly way, but is informed by uh, Christian and Judeo-Christian uh, aspirations. So that's for starters. So let's, let's start with the beginning. What was so revolutionary about the founding of the United States, particularly in the, in its implementation of the constitution and promulgating this idea of natural rights and the Bill of Rights that, well, that everybody just, has them. You've just said said part of it that n nobody had ever created a nation that had had, had such a basis, that it was, uh, and it was Republican in a large, you know, continent on a continental scale. Um, so, it, you know, when Tocqueville came to America in the early 19th century, he said, I went over to see an example of a great republic. What he meant was a big republic, uh, a grand republic. And, um, you know, there had never been anything like it before. And that, that, that uh, in its constitutional stu structure, it foreswore monarchy. Uh, there, was, there, was, there was never going to be a king. Uh, George Washington might have been able to, to uh, secure that for himself had he wanted to, but he was committed to the Republican small R Republican, the Republican ideal. So, uh, and, and the notion of natural rights that um, is, is very much woven through the founding uh, period, although there are lots of other influences too. There are mm -hmm. religious influences, there are English uh, influences from English common law. Uh, in many ways, uh, the, the single most important driver of the revolution was the, the belief that uh, that American colonists were Englishmen who were being deprived of their uh, memorial rights, their, their inherited rights as Englishmen. So that they, ironically, they were they were rebelling against the British Empire in order to um, secure the rights that they had as Englishmen. They took it a step farther. It, it wasn't simply that they were being denied rights as Englishmen. They also uh, basically enumerated other rights that they deemed were natural that people are, are, are ordained with. And how unusual was that relative to everybody else in, in history up until that point? Well, sure, it was, it was a quite revolutionary, quite quite uh, different. Now, the, the, it's it's the rights that Jefferson talked about in the, in the Declaration of Independence, you know, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And uh, presumably there are other natural rights, but they're not mentioned there. Um, uh, that's distinct from the Bill of Rights making up the first 10 amendments to the Constitution most of which come from English common law. And, the, and there was a, 
there was a debate. Uh, you know, uh, Madison himself wasn't really sure there was such a good idea to have a Bill of Rights because whenever you start enumerating rights, what isn't enumerated, what isn't stated, is uh, that there can be a presumption that it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So that, um, uh, you know, for example, the right, let's just say the right to marriage, uh, did that need to be in there? Uh, well, you know, no, of course not, because that, that's something that was presumed. Um, but uh, a later time might might look at the matter differently. Uh, so so uh, there there was a some debate about whether you should enumerate the rights in the, in the Bill of Rights. Uh, but anyway, yes, I think there, there's I think natural rights um, uh, is is a, is one of the profound founding a nation on the notion that that everyone has certain natural rights and natural rights being clearly equivalent to God-given rights, uh, in effectually. Uh, n- not that nature and God are the same thing. They sort of were for Jefferson, but they weren't for everybody. They mm-hmm. weren't for most of them. But but it was, they were, these were rights that could not be taken away by government. They were uh, in, inalienable rights. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, that, that language is in, in the Declaration. Um, uh, and we don't often think about what that means. Inalienable rights are rights you actually can't give up. Right. Um, you know, not even for a pandemic? It's not even for a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you can, you sure. can violate the, the, the rule of nature. You know, we do that all the time. Right. But, um, but no, not, not justifiably. So it was We're, establishing the, 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 uh, the, the rights that were being, you know, abrogated by Parliament and the King as having a source beyond their reach uh, in nature. Um, so that was, uh, and, and you know, Jefferson was very learned in, in, when it came to the English common law and all of that, but I, I think he knew what he was doing when he was using nature and nature's God as the basis for, for the rights in the Declaration. Now, with, with respect to the Bill of Rights, the, the First Amendments of the Constitution, uh, where did they get their inspiration from. So you mentioned English common law. Um, obviously, England doesn't have a constitution. So this is the first time in basically human history where we're, we're making this the backbone, the foundational structure by which to create this democratic republic um, just so far beyond what anybody has ever attempted before. I mean, Greece had democracy, but which lasted, well, Athens did, which lasted a short period of time. But doing this on a, on a nation state level uh, through a democratic republic and enumerating these Rights like things like due process, you know, um, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, mm-hmm. uh, the right to bear arms, um, you know, the, uh, the the Fifth Amendment right. Um, where where did they get inspiration for these things? Was it just English common law? Was it from uh, the Romans? Was it bits and pieces from the Romans? Was it? Bit, I know that our founding fathers had a conversation with with someone the other day about the, uh, the Iranian Revolution, and we were talking about uh, Cyrus the Great. And I know that a couple of our founding fathers were. Um, admirers of his, and he, oh, yes. he's sort of credited with having, um, you know, maybe the first human rights declaration, which was, you know, freedom to worship. Do, what are sort of the, the bits and pieces uh, that you're aware of that they sort of took from uh, in, in, in making this Bill of Rights? Well, I think, you know, one way to answer your question is to, to look at what, um, uh, the, how, how in the process, uh, the notion of, of a Bill of Rights 
as amendments to the Constitution arose. It's kind of an odd way of doing it. If you were, you know, could just pick a way of doing it, you'd just include it in the body of the document. Um, and this is why I, I think it's really important to acknowledge the role of the anti-federalists, those who opposed the adoption of the Constitution, um, who are, you know, often seen as, you know, you know, one of the the, the, the uh, examples of history of losers. Um, but they weren't entirely because they did, uh, you know, they were afraid of certain things about the the uh, Constitution that it was. Uh, they actually objected to its being secular. Um, uh, many of them, not all of them. Not there wasn't a unified uh, anti-federalist doctrine, all but right. there was definitely concern about the concentration of power uh -huh. in the hands of an of, a, of particularly of a president. Um, the the convention, you know probably felt more comfortable about that than they might have otherwise because they knew that George Washington was going to be the guy and that he would uh, execute it well, which, of course, he did uh, more than well. These first 10 amendments of the Constitution were were uh, primarily drafted to answer the concerns of anti-federalists, of those who um, uh, were concerned that, that, uh, that fundamental rights uh, would be trampled upon unless there was some sort of explicit... Um, defense of them. That that says a lot about the character. Uh, and if you think of each one of the of the uh, the ten amendments as in some way answering some present uh, threat or difficulty at the time, um, you know, <laughs> uh, you think of the right to bear arms in relation to and, and quartering of soldiers. You know, this is <laughs> this is going right back to the uh, the occupation. Uh, in Boston uh, prior to the, the beginning of the, of the Revolutionary War. Um, so a lot of these, you know, come less from, from principle, although they're grounded in principle, than from specific mm -hmm. response to offenses that, that the, the empire, the British empire, uh, perpetrated upon the colonists and that, that, you know, the people did not want to see repeated again. So the, the, they, they represented a, a, a way of defending against that happening. I see. Okay. So, so some, a lot of it was just based on um, rights that they feel being trampled on and making sure mm. that this new country that's being formed uh, ensures that those rights are defended uh, by a new rank them in, into the Constitution. You know, something interesting, though, yeah, if I could point out, that, mm -hmm. because there is um, an English-British um, foreground to this in the, the, the all of the uh, – Wars of the of the 17th century that, that all the conflict that eventuates in the the uh, glorious revolution and the the, the British coming to to uh, the sort of constitutional monarchy sort of limited monarchy with parliamentary uh, control uh, of of, of uh, the, the royal power and that does that's a very important prelude to all this and and there was a bill of rights that, to come out of that process. Um, the, the, the interesting thing is that Burke, Edmund Burke uh, makes this argument that the British uh, Bill of Rights, um, it should be understood as grounded in inheritance. It, it's, these are rights that were established by the fathers, by the forebears, and, and inherited by their successors. When Jefferson talks about natural law, uh, if it's natural, that doesn't mean it's dependent on inheritance. Mm -hmm. So uh, that that is something that's that's genuinely new, as is the whole idea of a written constitution. That that mm -hmm. 
it's kind of extraordinary how how important that is, and we don't talk a lot about it. You know, we see Independence Day, July Fourth, fireworks and all kinds of uh, wonderful stuff. Constitution Day, September seventeenth. Many people don't even know the date. We don't do anything. We have lectures on college campuses um, in which people often it's often decry the Constitution as crazy. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but that, that we, it's an extraordinary thing to have a written constitution because a written document is something that theoretically any Tom, Dick, and Harry who can read can consult and point to and mm-hmm. say, here, look, I know my rights. Here, here's what it says. Um, instead of having to depend on, you know, the <laughs> nothing against lawyers, mind you, but uh, having to uh, depend, on, depend on a sort of specialized mm-hmm. pre- quasi-priestly legal profession to interpret all those things. Absolutely. So, and, and not only was it radical in, in the implementation of these, these rights, which were really crazy. Uh, I mean, even by today's standards, people don't, uh, countries don't abide by these concepts of uh, being able to worship freely. Like, uh, you know, there, there are many sort of Islamic countries or some Catholic countries even there. Oh, sure. Um, don't have a, have a separation between church and state. Um, you know, the right against self-incrimination, you know, the, uh, the due process rights, as we mentioned, the you know, right to have a counsel and a speedy trial, the right to accuse your witnesses. I mean, so these are, these are such, I mean, we're talking about what well, the 18th century, these are such, such a huge leap forward in the United States. And so this, this leads to kind of the question that I want to get to with you, which is, um, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. So even before critical race theory was, was officially a thing, it was a thing, you know, they just didn't call it that. Oh, yeah. Um, but to the extent of this incredible emphasis on the, um, the wrongs that America was committed, particularly when I, you get to the high school level and things like AP world history and AP us history, you know, with, with, with slavery, with, um, the Native American treatment, which of course have to be discussed. There's, there's no debate yes. about that. No, no reasonable person can debate that. But the other things also need to be discussed. And, and one of the issues I, I, I realized was, okay, well, you know, all the uniquely American achievements that made it possible for, to the extent there's freedom anywhere in the world, it's only because of America. And we could look at that from a military context in terms of saving the world from World War II and communism. But even before that, you know, the, the countries that followed in our footsteps to uh, you know, have have a, a free society, a democratic society, we're inspired by America, we're aided in many cases by America. So, to the extent freedom exists anywhere in the world, it's because of the United States. And so, the, but the way they would frame things would be that you know they they universalized every unique American achievement, right? So you like you know, man on the moon is a human achievement. Um, you know the uh, to the extent they say anything positive about the Constitution, it's a, it's a human achievement, right? The um, implementation of civil liberties and human rights, either human achievements. You know, the polio vaccine is a human achievement. You know, none of these things would, would be possible in America. But then all the all the the things that America took part in, which were uh, disgraceful, which was a sort of disgraceful condition of of our species, things like slavery, which existed thousand, ten thousand years before the United States even became a country, and lasted for about uh, what 70, 80 years after the Constitution was ratified, and continues to exist to this day. Those things are attributed directly to America, as if that's some sort of American phenomenon. Whereas there's nothing unique about slavery; it's a a deplorable, disgusting thing that's happened for thousands of years, and America, like virtually every other place on this planet, took part in it. But America actually fought a war to end it. And within the since the Constitution ratified, you're talking 70, 80 years. There's nothing in Spanish history. So uh, my question is: Do you see that the the teachings 
of history, particularly American history, particularly in the K through 12 setting and society being shaped by people like Howard Zinn and, you know, the 1619 project. Do you, do you see that as sort of being corrupted by these kinds of people? Because that's kind of, that's the, the mindset that I grew up with that I was taught by, <laughs> um, neglecting all the amazing, unique things about the United States. I, I think, no, I think you're right. And I think even people who don't know much, uh, uh, which is most people, uh, or um, or haven't really studied American history, there's a kind of um, default position. Actually, let me, it, 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 let me put it this way, that when I first started studying American history, uh, there was a, what I would call a default position. And as a teacher, you know, you, you would ask a student a question, you give a, a writing assignment. You know, um, uh, why did uh, why did Andrew Jackson feel the way he did about the Bank of the United States? And uh, why, and and the, you know the student didn't know what to say. You know they didn't know. So what are you going to do? Well, you fake it, and you, you and you fake it by going back to what I call the the, the sort of all purpose default, which is to say something in fact that well Andrew Jackson was a was a man. He had strong views. He had <laughs> student paper writing, and then then you end up with what I call the stars, stars and straits forever. You sort of say, well, because America's the greatest nation in the history of the world and uh, blah, 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 you know, da 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 And uh, now, um, some, you know, four decades later, there's, there's still a default, ignorant default position. It's just that, well, America's too arrogant, it's too proud, uh, it's, uh, and Andrew Jackson, you know, going back to that stupid question, Andrew Jackson exemplified this uh, pride and, and, uh, uh, irrationality and and so on and and uh, uh, so it, it plays on the America as villain sort of trope, whereas the the first default was America as you know pure as pure as the driven snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, neither one extreme. is true. Yeah. Uh, and and look, I when I wrote Land of Hope, uh, you, you know that the I can't tell you how many times I talked to people both historians and, and, and just regular people. Um, and the first thing I'd say, well, how are you going to handle Indian removal? How are you going to handle slavery? How are you going to handle the Japanese internment? Um, um, uh, you know, th- those are sort of the big three. And I kind of felt like asking you, was that all you know about? Right, American right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I I think it's a great uh, and, and uh, important thing for us to have the strength as a people to acknowledge uh, our faults. But Absolutely. I think uh, there's a great difference between um, you know, remembering or you know, consciousness of, of, of something and endlessly brooding about mm-hmm. it or wallowing in guilt about it when there's actually nothing really to be done about the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and the way this concept of equity now is that it's this equality plus remediation of every evil, real or perceived in the past, and then you have equity. Well, that, that's, that's really a negation of the whole American idea that of not being encumbered by the weight of the past. Um, uh, it, you know, and what I began with, being a land of hope means that in some way, America is a sort of land of jubilee in the biblical sense, that, that a land in which uh, we, we, we're not, our lives aren't determined by the weight of the past, they, we, there's an openness uh, to possibility. Uh, that's pr- one of the things that's so uh, 
terrible about and about critical race theory and its many antecedents. Because you're right, it was around uh, in in one form or another, you know, thirty some years ago when I was a graduate student. Um, it just didn't have a name, but it actually was con already conditioning the responses of an awful lot of people in the historical profession. And I, I just always was different. Um, I, I went to graduate school later, and, and I think was, it wasn't as completely formed by the academy in my views. I actually worked with the U.S. Navy for a while, and that, that probably had made a big difference in my life. But uh, I wasn't in the Navy, but I worked as a civilian with the Navy uh, as an editor. Um, uh, but, but yes, look, I think what we lack is not a knowledge of our sins, but a sense of perspective on them. Mm -hmm. I don't want, uh, one of the things I fear actually may come out of this whole period of, uh, brooding, um, and, 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 and sort of projecting the sense of sin onto others in order to get it off our own backs, which I think a lot of the woke, you know, movement is about, um, it, what it could eventuate in is, is a complete cauterization of the conscience of people who will get to a point where they're tired of feeling guilty mm -hmm. of things about things that um, they 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 really shouldn't feel guilty about. Right. I, I really shouldn't feel guilty about um, the deeds of people who were not my forebears in uh, Indian removal or you know, some other or slavery right. for. I mean, right, right. my entire lineage north of the Mason-Dixon line until 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 I grew up in Maryland, but long after that. But uh, um, it also gets annoying, right? I mean, like, uh, so I agree with you. I think that the tide will will shift. You know, Howard's in with theme, yeah. which permeated throughout, you know, particularly like I would say this, the California education system, and was a precursor to the whole critical race theory thing. You're looking at everything as a sort of uh, a grievance from a sort of ethnic perspective. Um, and he was, of course, a communist. If all you're hearing is just this, like, depressing, guilty, sombering story, you're just going to, like, tune it out. Like, it's like you have to, you know, yeah, it's, like I, watching, I, it's like watching a movie that's nothing but depression. You have to throw in some good stuff. You have to throw in some comedy. You have to, right? And it's sort of, it, look, I think this, this is what leads to the attractiveness for a lot of young people, the, the all right, that they, they think, mm -hmm. are, you know, trying to elicit a sense of guilt, uh, in people over the very fact of their existence, mm -hmm. um, that's ultimately as, you know, asking people to to uh, to sort of extinguish themselves. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, I I I, I want to give you an expression. I I, I don't like use vulgarity lightly. I'm I'm kind of the last holdout that's in right. this regard. Uh, but I'm going to use a, a vulgar expression that um, I can't somehow involved Brandon in it. So but I'll just give you the straight words. And but first let me tell you who said them. Uh Eugene Genovese, probably the greatest American historian of slavery, uh, who was white and a Sicilian, you know, Italian Sicilian uh uh immigrant and a Marxist uh for most of his life. A very interesting guy and a, a great writer. But he said to me once, and I think he said this in print uh, to various places, but uh, I remember it because he looked at me. I, and I, I was, he, he was known for being both incredibly perceptive about uh, the inner life of slaves. Uh, the, he wrote a book called Roll, Jordan, Roll, The World the Slaves Made. And it was really about that. Uh, extraordinary book. He also wrote a book called uh, the, the Mind of the Master Class. He had a kind of interest in uh, the other side, 
of mm. that and what kind of worldview um, uh, brought that about. And he always had a respect for Southern white culture, which you might not have expected, even as he had an immense affinity for African-American culture. So this was an extraordinary thing about Gene, many extraordinary things. And they said this to me, uh, said, no man should be required to piss on the grave of his father. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the problem where we are right now. When people pull down statues and they do it for the very reason that those who erected them or the descendants of those who erected them will be hurt, will be outraged, will be wounded, will be made angry by the act, especially if it's a violent, mm -hmm. you know, a lawless act. When you have a situation where that's the actual reason that people are doing it, they are in effect saying, oh, we're going to piss on the grave of your father. And nothing good can come of that. Nothing. Absolutely. What we've always needed uh, to think about more clearly is reconciliation. Uh, Lincoln himself, who fought the Civil War ferociously, at the very end, and I quote this in my book, um, at his last cabinet meeting, he said, well, now, I trust there will be no uh, effort to kind of effect kind of vengeance and humiliation of the of the South, of the white South, that there's already been too much of that. Um, he really did want to bind the nation together. And then, of course, along comes John Wilkes Booth and his assassination, and that his, his vision was not, we didn't have a chance to see if he could implement it. But I, I, I think this, this is all so horribly counterproductive to unearth um, corpses from 150 plus years ago in order to <laughs> pee on them one last time. And and look, it's not just Robert E. Lee. It's not just Stonewall Jackson right. or, or right. Um, these kind of figures. Well, it's, it's Lincoln too. It's, Lincoln. it's even Lincoln now. I mean, it's Douglas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Frederick Douglas is be, because uh, he, he um, it, and it's, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, the, the great feminist that worked with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, Susan B. Anthony. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. because she felt that uh, women's suffrage was more important than black male suffrage. Uh, you know, all these anachronistic debates right. uh, are, are made, are treated as if they are contemporary in character. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, let me, excuse me, I'm getting on my soapbox here, but meanwhile, the New York Times, going back 400 years ago to uh, uh, excoriate uh, the, the country for being founded in slavery, and, right. uh, something she has both continues to assert and claims she never said. Uh, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. uh, in the meantime, we have the lar largest number of enslaved people in the world today. You know, many tens of millions. I, I, I'm not sure what the exact number is, uh, but, the, you know, the, the, uh, the UN has a commission that studies that keeps track of this. I think 23 million sla enslaved people. And yeah, I heard 30 million last Asia, time. Yep. Yeah. And... Uh, and we have a situation in which the economy of our country is heavily dependent on what is in fact slave labor on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and we and, and that's something we don't even see fit to talk about. No, let's talk about 400 right. years ago. Right, um, right, right. It's bizarre. Let's make up it's, facts about 400 years ago on top of that, yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm a, I'm a historian. I care about the past. I spent a lot of my life living in the past. It's not that I think the past is uh, unworthy of our attention, but I'd also, you know, we live forward. 
Um, mm-hmm. uh, we, we, we study history partly to enhance what we are in the present. Um, right. And, and, not, and not, not have our morals uh, apply to, some, to a situation that happened several hundred years ago and then judged by today's standards, something that yeah. people – Several hundred years ago, weren't even you know sort of tuned to and 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 knowledgeable about and you know wasn't part of the zeitgeist of the culture at the time, uh, and then and then to think to be so arrogant to think yes. that people several hundred years from now aren't going to do the same thing to us. It's like oh so this is the perfect time. This is the the zenith of morality that you can just judge everything there and you're perfect and no one in the future is going to do the same thing to you. That is beautifully put, Ash, and I can't improve on that. What what I can tell you is I I, I have several times. Um, used uh, an analogy with my classes or just in discussions with young people particularly and, and, and I've said look uh, making the point that moral sensibilities evolve and, and that uh, things that I mean I can remember you know I, I used to smoke and I can remember um, coming into situations where um, I just light up in people's houses and and expect them to bring me an ashtray and you know things that now it would just be it would be a right. gas. And that's what everybody did. Right, right. And that's a small thing. That's a small yeah. thing. Yeah. But here's something I, I said when I say moral sensibilities evolve. Let me let me give you this example. It, it, can you not imagine that 50, 75 years from now, um, the moral sensibilities will have evolved to, in a way and to a degree that we will now not only look upon eating meat and raising animals for the purpose of slaughtering them and consuming mm-hmm. them as an unspeakable barbarism. That's not hard to imagine, mm-hmm. at least. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to live in such a world, but, you know, it's hard. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but imagine that the very idea of the domestication of animals is the same way. In other words, you, by, by owning a dog or a cat, are complicit mm-hmm. in this system of barbaric domination over animals, the animal kingdom, the dignity of animals, the, their rights, their mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. And, and they're kind of stunned because they realize that I'm right, that this, all of this is imaginable, um, yep. easily imaginable, easily, especially yeah. today when we're, um, we're discovering new rights every day, virtually. Um, I see there's a new right for the, the minor, minor attracted uh, adults or something like that. This is a new term that's been invented for, for pedophilia. Uh, pedoph- mm-hmm. you know, and, and so, um, yeah, so moral sensibilities evolve and, uh, um, and they evolve, they're evolving fast uh, in our own time. So uh, can't we have, to go back to your point, a little bit more generosity towards a Thomas Jefferson, who in fact, um, did understand that slavery was was unacceptable. That it was a, it was really uh, un- unjust. It was uh, um, it, what he lacked was the ability to to sort of arrange his affairs in such uh-huh. a way. Take that extra step, yeah, yeah, to get to to. And how many of us can relate to all that? You know, <laughs> I can't stop buying things from Amazon. You know, mm-hmm. I, even though I'm trying very hard. Yeah. Uh, uh, not so quite the same thing. But Jefferson they, would have been like sort of within the 0.0001% in terms of forward looking in terms of his probably more morality and ethics. I don't think that relative to his time period. I mean, if you really, I mean, slavery was everywhere in the world at that point. The first anti-slavery movement started in the United States or in, mm-hmm. in, in British North America, right. what was soon to become the United States. I, I can't recommend enough uh, Sean Lulens's 
book, um, No Property in Man, which I, I think is a real breakthrough book on this subject, published two years ago, I think, or maybe it was last year. But And he's a very left-wing historian from Princeton. He's, he's spearheaded both of the impeachment uh, petitions among historians against Trump. Um, and, and he's, he's all, you know, he's not a, not a right winger in any way, shape or form, but he wrote this book to kind of evaluate the question, was the Constitution a pro-slavery document? And he comes to the conclusion, no, it wasn't. It does have certain protections for slavery. That's not disputable. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also it, it is clearly designed to be, to be to be written in a way that that the, the abolition of slavery is 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 uh, even implicit in it. That's what Frederick Douglass mm-hmm. believed. And Madison goes out of his way to avoid using the word um, mm-hmm. uh, slave, slavery, and anything like that. There's the word servitude is used, but that can apply to all kinds of things. Um, so, um, and there was a debate by, back then, by the way, as well, right? There were there were there were people on both sides of that issue. Which is mm-hmm. rare by human standards in the 18th century. Yes, yes. So, uh, but but you made a point a while back about the ubiquity of slavery, and I think that's really important. That slavery is um, is something that has been a feature of most of human history. That it really has been only in modernity, and uh, and maybe it, it, and imperfectly, as I pointed out, because much of the world. Um, that kind of absolutely you know, destitute servitude exists. Uh, um, it maybe not, may not. It doesn't have the sanction of law. I mean, slavery is is illegal everywhere in the world, uh, technically speaking. But but it exists in places like Mauritania. Who's going to come in right. and root mm-hmm. out slavery? You know, it's not going to happen. So, twenty five percent of the population of that country right. is enslaved by, by any. Even uh, in a place like the Indian subcontinent, you see that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so it it is this this business of of establishing you know the notion that human dignity is a natural right is a beautiful thing, but it it shouldn't be taken to imply that it's our natural state. That is that that we come into the world uh, and uh, you know like Rousseau's you know man is born free but everywhere is in change. Uh, well, no, <laughs> um, freedom is an achievement. Freedom is not a sort of something that is automatically bestowed, uh, like the prize to every kid in a t-ball match. You know, it, it is something that we we have to appropriate, we have to work at, and it's not doesn't come automatically. It hasn't been automatic. You know, Victor Davis Hanson has just published this really extraordinary book called *The Dying Citizen*, which he points out that the idea of citizenship, um, which is a certain kind of freedom, All right. Um, it may be the noblest kind of freedom um, is dying because we don't appreciate how rare and how mm-hmm. fragile and how evanescent it is. We don't, uh, the idea of people ruling themselves, which is the essence of the Republican idea in small R Republic. Right. I wish it were large R, but it's only small R. <laughs> um, the idea of people ruling themselves um, is uh, it, 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 it's been around on and off, but the idea of actually making it a reality mm-hmm. and making that reality last. You know, most of the most of the people who wrote about republicanism, you know, going back to Aristotle, back to Machiavelli and so on, all saw it as an evanescent thing. That it was fragile. It was inherently fragile and that republics were doomed 
to last a little while and then flicker out. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know, it, it, and there are people who say we we long ago ceased to be a republic. Um, I don't accept that myself, and I certainly don't accept that what ways we've lost uh, self rule are lost forever. Um, I'm just not. <laughs> I'm just not going to lie down and accept that. Um, and I, I hope as an educator to convince, you know, uh, people who read my book, uh, young people and not so young people, that they shouldn't lie down and accept it. Um, I rejoice in things like the uh, school board revolts in in uh, in Virginia and uh, people kind of getting up on their hind legs and mm-hmm. being heard. That's. Uh, that's, it's, it's democracy, but it's republicanism. Mm-hmm. It's people behaving like citizens. And we need to recover that, that notion that, that our freedom is most meaningful in, in that, the context of a political society that allows us to rule ourselves. Absolutely. I, I think a lot of Americans uh, absolutely take it for granted that uh, how fragile it is, right? It's that, that Reagan quote that we're never more than a generation away from, yes. from losing the freedom. I think a lot of people that you know anecdotally the people i know who are similar to me in the in the sense that they're children of immigrants particularly if they're immigrants from you know pretty uh, crappy circumstances and and mismanaged countries they understand that um and and that might yes. be why the you see a bit of a shifting coalition right so like for example to, to draw it out politically right trump the only uh demographic group he did worsen was white men right <laughs> and 40 40 percent hispanics uh, yeah. Voted for him, and then you had that last election with uh, Youngkin, where I believe he won the Hispanic vote. I, I do think that we need to understand that a lot of the children of immigrants may be the ones who actually end up saving a republic because they know oh, how, how it can be. Right? It's you like, won't really argue for me. That's part of the yeah. paradox of, of mm-hmm. what's going on now. I think I, I think open borders is is a disastrous Absolutely. policy. Mm-hmm. It's sort of plainly disastrous, and the, the, the Democrats are really playing with fire with this in terms of our natural national future thinking they can kind of re re stack the deck of, mm-hmm. of their, their constituency um because once people get here and start accumulating some wealth right uh, they change but mm-hmm. but but more to the point you know people like your forebears and mine uh, uh, who came here uh, you know land of hope uh, on you know on a wing and a prayer and uh often from circumstances that they would not want to go back to mm-hmm. um uh that they, they're grateful they're grateful you know you you ask cab drivers in new york city right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, who who are from places in africa and asia and so on many of them muslim uh, uh and yet they're they're ferociously mm-hmm. pro-american I can't tell you how many times I've stepped into cabs in New York and found the cabbie playing Rush Limbaugh back when Rush was alive. Um, and, you know, I wanted to ask them, hey, what, what gives here? What are you, what are you doing? Uh, but but I, and they would, uh, I think the de Blasio regime has had a lot to do with that, but they, mm-hmm. they just loathe him. But, but yes, right. immigrants, I, uh, the way I always say it, it's immigrants renew the sense of America's promise. Mm-hmm. And the native born, uh, you know, it would not surprise me. I've never seen any studies of this, but it would not surprise me to find that the a large percentage of the of the, the most sort of vigorously woke young people are of, of native 
native stock. They're hundred percent. Yeah, they're hundred percent. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. You know, I'm in the belly of the beast here. Let me tell you, they are. You know, and, and there's actually a distinction too. Just to sort of postpone this, and I was, I was talking to somebody else about this because within the Jewish community, you have sort of the um, you have the sort of white American Jews who have like been here for multiple generations, and they're all very left wing. Uh, there's still that's why when you see the the polls of like you know sixty percent, seventy percent of the Jews support the, the Democratic Party. It's it's that demographic, but then you have sort of the the Jews from the Middle East uh, who like you know like their parents' generation yeah. came here from or from Russia or from Eastern Europe came after Soviet Union came or like my mom from Iran, um, all all conservative. So and it's it's because they've seen anti-Semitism, they've seen right, and so and yeah. I also don't know an immigrant. I actually don't know an immigrant family who who would ever even consider being in favor of defund the police. Like that's just like such an intuitive thing. It's like wait, you you don't want yeah. protection from. You know, like, maybe, yeah, sure, the police have some problems, but, like, you just – you're not going to have any law and order? Like, you're not going to have – you don't want people to call if in case things go bad like they did in my country, right? So yeah. it's absolutely what they call uh, – someone called uh, – I forgot his name uh, – a luxury belief. They're, they're luxury yeah. beliefs, yeah. Yes, yeah, well, and especially if you're living in a gated community or mm -hmm. um, have a place out in Napa. You know, I'm sure Nancy Pelosi has all of these things. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you're not going to be affected. You've got yeah. personal security, and you're not going to be affected by the deterioration of your neighborhood. Uh, now, it's people of, of more modest means who can't afford yeah. to live in those kinds of, 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 of communities yeah. that, that are that bear the brunt of this. It's, it's, it's terrible, and it's sort of obvious um, that that this is wrong. But you know, our, our media either don't want to don't see it or don't want to report it, or their editors don't want to let them report it. Uh, and, a lot of the content of news is actually the editors uh, telling the reporters uh, what to do. There's been a uh, shift as well, which has been documented, where in, say, your generation, the, a lot of the journalists were from working class uh, backgrounds. Their parents were, yeah. you know, uh, GM workers and plumbers and things of that nature, electricians. And now they're the journalists come from elite backgrounds where their their parents were college educated yeah. and professors and people of that nature. And they so they, they grew up in a completely different bubble from yes where they're supposed to be reporting to we have a real class problem in this country now and, and it's it's not class in the classic marxian way uh exactly because uh, um it doesn't correlate exactly with wealth or income level or um right. owner, ownership of the means of production maybe ownership of the means of in, information or communication but um we do have this sort of what I call the college culture, as it sort of ramifies out into all sorts of dominant institutions, including corporate boardrooms. Uh, and and then you have people, working people, who may be uh, may not be college educated. You know, uh, remember when Trump in his first campaign said, I love the poorly educated mm -hmm. and everybody in, you know, sort of our world. The world that you and I move around in. Right. Uh, that was just the most uh, unbelievably <laughs> sort of self-owning right. uh, uh, statement. I mean, yeah. how could anybody say I love ill-educated people? But and then you think about what, why? Uh, well, part of what he was saying in his own way was, I love people who haven't become, you know, sort of uh, uh, drunk the Kool-Aid of the college culture. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, and who are people who. Uh, you know, work with their hands, who understand machinery. Look, I, I, I was telling you before we started the interview, I'm living in a very sort of country setting here, and uh, I'm not 
the world's handiest guy. Uh, I'm not terrible, but I, um, I'm certainly not going to fool around with my own electrical or other uh, stuff that's, that's dangerous. And I have a steady stream of workmen coming through, uh, doing this and that, installing a generator, you know, uh, mm -hmm. fixing the, the lights and uh, uh, the sewage system and so on. And every single one of them, if I ask them, who did you vote for for president, I know the answer. Right, right, right. Um, and they're not all white, by the way. I mean, yeah. They're, 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 and, uh, but every single one of them, I know. Because, you know, the, the Democratic Party is no longer the party of the working class. Mm -hmm. And especially the white working class, but not yeah. only the white working class. And we, we have, we're yet to kind of um, grasp uh, the ramifications of this. I certainly think the Republican Party doesn't understand that it is default, by default, the party of the of, of the working class. Well, they have to. And they're smart. Yep. They haven't yep. embraced it completely. Mm -hmm. It was something that Trump did did embrace. And uh, look, I I uh, respect anybody who has extremely mixed or even negative feelings about Trump. But I think you can you have to acknowledge there's a way in which he has begun to precipitate the realignment of our parties mm. uh, that needs to take place. Yes. Yeah. I don't, you know, you asked about polarization. I mean, I think we all can see in certain ways we are very polarized. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that it's the kind of polarization that's going to lead to a civil war or to any kind of se meaningful separation. I think we're too, we're too intertwined uh, for that um, economically and otherwise. Uh, but but I also think that part of the, the part of the problem has, has to do with this process of realignment that is taking place, but has not yet completed itself. And and there need to be better representations of the voices of both sides. I think that the right, for lack of a better term, and um, you know, uh, uh, is, it does not have a, a reliable voice uh it has there are definitely uh, avenues and your blog your your podcast is going to be one of them uh for sure but um you know the, the alternative media has just had uh, uh you know had to develop uh against fierce resistance and now we're kind of in the situation where with the news world you you, you, know, you tune into one <laughs> you know the fox world or msnbc world and you have mm -hmm. entirely different universes right. and as a result, you know, when I try to talk to people about things that are going on that they, that are not reported at all. I, I was with some people the other day and I said, well, what, what do you make of Gavin Newsom's disappearance for the last two weeks? They didn't know what I was talking about. Because, hmm. you know, if you just read the Washington Post or the LA Times or whatever, you wouldn't be aware of it. Right. And, uh, and no one seems at all curious about why mm -hmm. he just disappeared for two weeks. And, <laughs> That's no big deal. He must yeah. have had a good reason. Mm -hmm. uh, you see that with, with the Rittenhouse case as well, where people actually think he was a white yeah. supremacist, didn't know that he that the, the people first of all self defense. Uh, secondly, the the victims were white, um, and mm -hmm. you know all had felonies, uh, and one of them is a you know con convicted uh, child molester who has a violent criminal past as well. And like people don't know that. And then you know I had a, I had a conversation with a friend the other day living in the bubble. He's, he's telling me, oh, you know, what do you think is a Rittenhouse thing? Like, like as if it was some, some sort of crazy guy, yeah. like school shooter type of situation. I'm like, where are you getting this information from? Like, you know, um, going back to that poorly educated comment. So the class thing is is has an income component to it, but but not entirely because if you like, I'll I know some you know say uh, millionaire contractors from different countries who came here with nothing from Armenia or Israel or Iran or something like that, Russia. I 
Um, and but they're not a part of of the upper class, even though the BuzzFeed person journalist making like 40 grand a year, that person is a part of the upper class sort of putting her nose down on on these kinds of people, right? Because it, it's almost like the Latin X divide, right? The people who use Latin X, that's, yes. that's kind of the elite class, right? And that's a very tiny group of people, but mm -hmm. they do have a megaphone. Mm -hmm. they, they buy ink by the barrel, as, as, as they used right. to say. So, uh, yeah, so they have a disproportionate uh, voice. Yeah, I think, it's a, but I think all of this information asymmetry uh, does a lot to encourage the sense that we're that, that, that we're a polarized country that everybody is on needles and pins in terms of ideological expectations. I don't think that's America. I don't think that's the America we're living. In. I think there are a small number of people who who eat, drink, and sleep this stuff, but most of us don't. And uh, and most people, you know, I want to I want to mention something about my book uh, Land of Hope because. Uh, you know, it's it's. I wrote it with young people in mind. I wrote it kind of as a textbook. It's a non-textbook textbook. But we've sold about a hundred thousand or more copies. I don't know what the latest numbers are, but pretty good, mm -hmm. and uh, way beyond anything I expected. And the majority of those people, Ashton, are um, people you know over the age of thirty-five or so. I mean, and and well into you know older categories. And I get I get mail from these people all the time. It's unbelievably moving. I feel so blessed. Um, I, I don't think what I did was that extraordinary, but they do because I think what they have felt for years is, and this gets back to our opening, but they felt for years is that, it, that the America that they know in their bones is a, a imperfect but good, fundamentally good place. We've made mistakes. We... we we, we usually have been able to correct them or improve on them, but the, our fundamental goodness has never been in doubt for them. And yet they see none of this reflected in the accounts of America that they read, especially books. And along comes a guy who writes something that does affirm that uh, while being honest about our faults and failings. And I think you know, if I hadn't been honest about faults and failings, uh, I think, people wouldn't be enthusiastic about the book. Mm -hmm. They don't want just a, a kind of valentine to themselves. Right. They want the truth, mm -hmm. and they want something that can kind of reinforce the sense of this basic, fundamental, deep-down, primal pride that they feel in being Americans. Um, and uh, uh, there's no reason they shouldn't have that. Mm -hmm. That's not a lie. That's the truth. Most of the people who read the book so far have been adults, you know, not not school school kids, but adults. They were hungry. People were hungry for this. They are hungry for this. Um, and uh, my profession, which is made of a lot of very clever people, some of whom have done really remarkable things, digging out um, evidence from the past about, you know, marginalized people and so on. And, and I, I, I respect that. I think that's uh, some of it's really quite wonderful. Uh, work, but it's not the whole story by any means. It, it, it is uh, it is uh, or the periphery of the story, not the core. Um, that's what young people need to know: the core of the story, and they need to know what it takes to be good citizens under our system of government. They they don't they don't have a slightest idea. They think they think that civics is protest movements, is marching in the streets, um, you know, threatening <laughs> senators. <laughs> in elevators with 
being uh, uh, being voted out of office. And, um, you know, that's well, look, I think what the school board people protesters are doing is legitimate um, and they are threatening them, but they're doing it in they're not doing it in a violent way. Um, uh, but that's what the, uh, the increasingly what schools teach is that it's the only the only way to get change in this country has been through uh, either violence or at least demonstrations that are outside the political system. Uh, no, we need we have a we have a, a lot of institutions, political institutions that can mediate conflict. We're just not using them. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I'm I'm not resigned to the idea that we're on the track towards perpetual um, uh, polarization and, and, and coming apart. I, I do think something has to happen to shift our sensibility. And I think it's, I, I think some kind of an economic shock is coming. It seems almost inevitable given the, the astonishing stupidity of our, our national government and, and its fiscal policies, mm-hmm. you can call them policies even. So I think we are going to get a root. Maybe it's coming right now, you know, 6.2% inflation uh, and uh, probably going to rise. Uh, well, all the experts keep telling us it's it's temporary. Trans, you know, yeah, transitory. It's a collapse yeah. of confidence and expertise mm-hmm. among ordinary Americans right now. This is, and that's part of what's going to affect a change, I think. Yeah. I, you see, I'm a naturally uh, optimistic person. I would say that wants to leave that. And then there's a part of me that yeah, also yeah. says, well, this time, the two sides, it's not the whole Democratic side for sure. It's just at least a sizable portion of individuals in this country, whatever they classify themselves as politically, but who, as we kind of started with, believe the country at score. And this is what the whole 1619 project was trying to do is show that the country was rotten from the beginning. That's why they're, that's why they, they went along that path. Uh, the country is inherently bad in, 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 in its core and its foundational principles and the Constitution is racist. The Bill of Rights is nonsense. And people think hate speech isn't covered by the Constitution. And um, getting back to the point that we are all from different backgrounds, right? Like my lineage is from one part of the world, yours from another. And and you know, the only thing I have in common with somebody, you know, a, a African-American from Mississippi or, you know, a white guy from Iowa whose family came here on the Mayflower is respect for the the foundation of this country, its laws, what it stands for. Uh, we're not Sweden. We're not, you know, Korea. We're not this homogenous society. And so, if we can't even come to terms on just the basic foundational principles, maybe and correct me if I'm wrong. Because as a historian, it seems like even just going back to the '90s, which I think was a pretty good decade, uh, especially it's pretty mm-hmm. rosy right now in terms of the, the yeah. culture. You know, we would argue about like you know, Bill Clinton, you know, uh, doing doing some bad <laughs> stuff behind the uh, office or like tax policy or spending policy and stuff. And and I, I think progressively, ever since the Bush administration and the Iraq war and then Obama and now Trump and now Biden, and it just seems like the the sort of foundational core of of not even come, being able to come to terms with basic stuff like like due process, like innocence or proven guilty. Yeah. yeah uh, you know, yeah. and that's that's a part troubles me. And I, I don't know if you have perspective on that. Well, yeah, no, they've lost a sense of uh, the rule of law. I think that, that, mm-hmm. that that's that's a big part of it, that the rule of law doesn't matter when it's your side that's that's abrogating the rule of law and uh, that that's a that's a fundamental lapse that that really no no civilized society can last for long if the rule of law is, is completely uh, tossed out at the window and i think and i think that's partly education it's partly uh, interestingly um you know when i was in graduate school i became aware of how much historical literature there was you know justifying um 
revolts and 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 uh, rebellions and and everything except of course the confederacy that and uh, um but but uh, uh you know the idea that violence political violence was really the expression of uh and even martin luther king said this but that a riot is an expression about people who've been silenced uh something that words to that effect and uh, that's it, that's another part of this phenomenon that i've described of uh us devaluing our institutions in favor of social movements often are just moved by sheer virulent passions um, and not not by principle. The idea of being guided by principle is something that we, we have lost, although it's actually hard to get along without. At some point, um, you know, during the, the debates, oh, you were too young to, to have been aware, aware of all this, but when, when Clinton was impeached, it was so interesting to see um, the two sides that were, you know, that were coming before the, the committee and testifying, they were both citing the Constitution. They were both citing the Federalist Papers. They were both citing all these authorities that, um, you know, that, that, that Anna Nicole, uh, whatever her name is, uh, uh, Harris, or, I can't remember her name, uh, um, the promoters of this extremely negative view of America have no acquaintance with, nothing to, you know, those, these are things we go back to when we have to decide. I think for us, the Constitution plays a role that uh, the monarchy does in England, uh, except that it still has power and the monarchy in England doesn't really have power. But, but it does, the Queen Elizabeth, who is, uh, I think is slipping, <laughs> but for whom I still have great admiration. Uh, I think with the death of her husband, is, is she's lost something, a sounding board. Uh, but um, leave that aside. I think she's a great symbol of the unity of the, of the Commonwealth, really, of the British Commonwealth, but the nation. And um, something that, that people can kind of recur to that's above politics. I think for us, the Constitution has played that role. It can still play that role. It certainly did for Lincoln. Lincoln saw the preservation of the Constitution as the the absolute the nepal ultra of uh, of the, the, the conflicts of his time, and uh, um, I think it, it is it is for us too a kind of an appreciation of what the Constitution is, what it and what it isn't. You know, the restriction of the of the monarchical power, which for us now is the presidency. Um, and uh, the, the separation of powers, the checks and balances, all of this stuff that the progressives find so tedious and time-wasting, um, they, they, they perform a substantive function in giving a voice to the, the opposition. And that's part of what we ought to be about, is giving, giving a voice to the opposition. And I, I fear very much living in a time where the opposition has no voice, where um, people who object to lockdowns to taking untested vaccines, uh, especially if they've already had the, the illness the vaccine's designed to prevent, uh, that these things cannot even be discussed until we suddenly one day we wake, wake up and the, and uh, all of a sudden it's okay to discuss the lab leak thesis and uh, yeah. you know it's just this astonishing after we get booster shot number fifteen maybe maybe we can yes we can right about right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, a freedom, you know, you quoted Reagan a while ago. That's it's hard to improve on that. That the, never more than a generation away. And now, you know, my generation, your generation, yeah, too, are kind of on trial. Yeah, absolutely. Give give us, you know, as someone who's chronicled American history. Uh, let, let's let's finish off here with, give us what you think is 
the most, um, if you can pick one, I know there are probably several, but if you could pick one, the most sort of um, underrepresented or under uh, underdiscussed um, or maybe even mischaracterized either person or event in American history you think needs more attention than it currently receives in society and academia? Yeah. Well, gosh, there's a lot uh, because almost everything is being misrepresented. Right. My first thought is Calvin Coolidge because I think this this was a this was a remarkably successful president. You know, Emily Schley's uh, her biography of Coolidge. Everyone should read that. It's it's uh, it 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 really gives you insight. He wasn't just a guy who sat around doing nothing, although that would be preferable to what we have now. But uh, uh, he he had a real uh, a, a vigorous philosophy, an anti-progressive philosophy. And in my book, I you know he has a uh, speech that he gave on the 150th anniversary of the Declaration while he was president. And it's a beautiful, beautiful speech in which he, he and it's really a counter to Woodrow Wilson and the progressivism of Woodrow Wilson, who um, I think is coming in for historical reckoning these days because of yep. his racial views. But I think he's he's got a lot of blood on his hands, not just that. Um, you know, also, I think the Adamses, John Adams and John Quincy Adams, um, both one-term presidents, um, you know, in, in, in the sea of Virginians running, you know, all the way through uh, to James Monroe and then John Quincy Adams and then boom. <laughs> so the Adamses were uh, deemed unsuccessful, but they were they were men of high principle who, um, of course, John Quincy Adams had a sort of second life because of his his involvement in anti-slavery. You know, after, he, after he left the presidency, he came back to the Congress and worked towards uh, you know, for, for the cause of anti-slavery. So he's, but he, they, they've been seen as these sort of aristocrats. And uh, I think that John Adams, David McCullough wrote it, did a good job okay. kind of beginning a revival of Adams as a, a um, judicious and temperate, uh, somebody who recognized the difference between a republic and a democracy. He, he had that fear uh, of democracy that I think uh, um, is part of it to being a judicious leader in a democracy. I think all leaders should read Plato's Republic, which is the best critique of democracy ever. Um, because it's not to say we should abandon democracy. We should know the pathologies of democracy and understand them and understand how the ways we can ennoble democracy. Oh, that's underrated. Um, you know, in a funny way, Hoover, uh, even though I think Hoover was a was not a good president, mostly because he was too much of a progressive. Right. Um, not, uh, but Hoover was a guy. He, he had a lifetime of public service, um, from the you know Belgian relief and uh, uh, you know things associated with the First World War all the way through uh, the, the rest of his life. And, and uh, his presidency was, in a sense, uh, an interruption of that, that pattern of public service. And I think he, he he woke up to the dangers of progressivism after uh, FDR and the New Deal um, and became much more uh, conservative. Right. Um, he was a more interventionist uh, candidate. People forget that. He, when, yeah. when they were both running yeah. against each other, he was he was running on more interventionist platform than FDR was. He was, absolutely. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's that's right. People, yeah. 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 Well, I, I like that you said, you said Adams as well. I think Adams very much, um, you know, we, he had the uh, the XYZ affair, which got the stain on his record. Uh, but 
In other and ways, the, he very the, much exemplifies the Sedition Act. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. That's area. Right. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of it. And yeah. but yeah, very much exemplified, I think, too, that the spirit of America. This is somebody who, uh, as we were discussing earlier, he never had slaves. Um, refused to have them. He did. Yeah. He did all the, right. his own right. work himself. Right. He took pride in that. He's somebody who, um, prior to the the uh, revolution, was defending a British officer because he felt so highly about. Master indeed. Yep. That's a, that's a great example. He also mm-hmm. had a terrific marriage. Mm-hmm. And, That's right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 and a terrific, to a terrific woman who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is, is, uh, has rightly, I think there's a society at Harvard called the Abigail Adams Society. And I'm happy to see her getting that kind of recognition. Mm-hmm. She ran, she ran the place. She ran the right. farm. She, yeah. Uh, she was like a businessman. I mean, it was a, it's an incredible. She was an extraordinary woman. Uh, yeah, she was. So, um, and, you know, in a way, Lincoln, you know, because uh, in Lincoln, and, and that sounds strange to say Lincoln is um, so universally esteemed, but I, right. I think. Even uh, like Castro, by Mag- the way. <laughs> uh, that's right. Well, uh, I mean, I, I forget it. Let's, uh, he's had enough praise. Uh, um, but I, I think Lincoln's misunderstood as um, he is a, he's a testament to uh, the, the, the power of moderation and incrementalism um, in uh, in political affairs. He he had he set his sights in in very. Uh, he understood that that the Constitution, if the if the you know that the people like William Lloyd Garrison, the, the really hardcore abolitionists who wanted to who were like in a way in a less serious way the New York Times sixteen nineteen people that they pretend to want to bring it all down. Like and replace it with what? Uh, mm-hmm. But um, William Lloyd Garrison was a Quaker, a fiery, uh, you know, Christian, um, immediate abolitionist advocate, and he said the Constitution was a pact with the devil. Burned a copy of the Constitution publicly mm-hmm. in Boston, um, and John, Frederick Douglass was at first a, a, a Garrisonian. You know, he, he agreed with that, but Lincoln, I think, convinced him, or he became convinced that Lincoln's approach which was to say, you know, no freedom is going to be worth anything if it comes at the expense of the Constitution. You have to have that fundamental structure of order first. And, uh, you know, that's something I think if you talk to most young people now, they, they would not agree. They would not agree with that Lincolnian insight. Uh, they would agree, well, yeah, we got to get a new Constitution. Let's just tear it down. You know? <laughs> and, and, the, and, you know, uh, uh, but but keep Wi-Fi service for everybody intact, you know, and all that. Uh, it, it, it's, it's partly a maturity, but I think Lincoln's prudence, and, you know, the Steven Spielberg film was not bad in showing that a man of high principle could also be a pretty canny political mm-hmm. officer, that they sure. weren't incompatible things. Mm-hmm. But he, he thought the way to do this was a constitutional amendment, you know, to abolish slavery. He had to commend the Constitution. And, uh, we think... Now it's a general consensus that amending the Constitution is too difficult, so we just work around it. I think this has been very destructive. We we need to have the fights about the, what the Constitution will be. That's part of what mm-hmm. living in our kind of society is about. Maybe maybe that's the, uh, the moral of the story we should end on is that we, you know, when we needed a Washington, we got a Washington. When we needed a Madison, we got a Madison. When we needed a Lincoln, we really needed him. There was basically nobody else who could have done that job yeah and and we got him and there very much is this um 
you know, d divine destiny that seems to have uh, blessed the United States um, in so many ways. Uh, you know, only superpower, for example, to not have to be surrounded by enemies is kind of, that's kind of a big one, you know. Um, yeah, that's kind of a big one, yeah. <laughs> You know, and, and it, se it seems like uh, when things have gotten to the point where they, where they look like things could fall apart, we got the kinds of people that we needed. Uh, yeah. It's really been yeah. totally true. Well, may it be so. Hopefully, I, I hope may so. May it be well. so for the future, because we certainly need <laughs> something other than what we've had and what we have right now. God help us. That's um, that's why yeah. I think that's something we can all probably agree on. Well, Professor McClay, yeah. thank you so much. It's been an amazing. My pleasure. It's Where can people great. find you? Oh well, I'm here at Hillsdale College, and you know, they, you can look me up, and and uh, my email address is there, and you know, I'm always happy to hear from people. So. And the book is Land of Hope, an Introduction Land to the Great Hope. American Story. Here. This is what it looks like. Land of Hope, Great American Story. I, I, I want to show it backwards on your screen, but uh, <laughs> yes, it, it's a lot of fun. I think people, one of the most gratifying things that people have said is that they, they enjoy the book. And how many people, I mean, there are people who enjoy history, uh, but often they like history, you know, like D-Day or some specific event or subject. And this is a sort of everything, but... Um, but it's done in a very narrative way. So I'd love to hear from people who have picked it up on the basis of this show. Happy and we'll put in the uh, podcast notes as well. Thanks so much, Professor. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.